Oh my, I mean, I was just so encouraged uh, to, to get to read uh, these letters to you, addressed to you. And you know, one of the questions that uh, people ask, and this was hinted at at this uh, last little card about the visiting family that has never seen this kind of outreach. One of the questions uh, uh, when, when people observe such extraordinary generosity, extraordinary generosity, uh, one of the questions that people ask is just the question, why do you do this? Why do you do this? What's, you know, what, 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 what's, what's, what's in it for you? What is it, what is it that drives you and pushes you to give and share and serve? What's, what's, what's motivating you? What's pushing you? What's driving you? What's driving you to do the good you do? Why do you do the good you do? That's the, that's a question. That's a question that's, there are maybe other questions on the table, but that question, either spoken or unspoken, is definitely on the table. Why do we do the good we do? Well, I want to talk about that this morning, and I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that answers that very question. It's a passage of Scripture that will teach us and inform us uh, um, uh, about about what's driving us to serve and to share and to go on missions trips and to learn and to grow as a Christian. What's driving us to love God and love people? And and if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. I believe it's on page 844 of your church Bibles. And in these verses... We learn the answer to the question, why do you all do the good you do? And I want you to see if you can't hear this answer as I read for us Titus 2, 11 to 15. It's on page 844 of your church Bibles. It's up on the screen as well. Here we go. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Titus 2, 11 to 15. Did you hear in these verses about what God says is what drives his people to do the good that they do and what is it that really needs to be our motivating factor toward godliness and life in Christ. Can you hear that? Do you hear that? What what did you hear? What was it that you heard was the motivating factor there? What? What? Grace. Grace. 
It's so important that we get this today. It's so important. And, 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 and here's why. You know, verse 12 says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Listen, um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but in the 1980s, Nancy Reagan, when she was first lady, she used her influence in a campaign against drugs. And what was her slogan? Do you remember the slogan? Just say no. Just say no. Just say no. That was her slogan. Well, here's the deal, church family. Nobody just says no. Nobody. People don't. Everybody says no because of something. People say no for a reason. And so it's, it's very important to ask why we do what we do because if we do the right thing for the wrong reason, then eventually we're going to do the wrong thing. If you, do, you, you can do the right, but if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, eventually you'll find yourself doing the wrong thing. For example, so, so, for, so, so why do we do the good we do? Well, well, one wrong reason to do the good that we do is why a lot of people do the good that they do out of fear. Some people are driven by fear and, and, or, or shame or guilt, huh? A lot of our Christmas giving is like this, right? It's fear-based or, or guilt-based or, or shame-based. And we go, you know, I just, you know, I, I really don't want to give this person something, but I guess I better because if I don't, then I'm going to feel guilty or I'm going to feel ashamed or I'm going to feel fearful or I'm going to feel awkward I'm around them, especially if they get me something and how's that going to be? And, you know, as a result, then, I mean, you know, that kind of an attitude, that kind of a heart, well, we, then we just end up getting whatever and it's really of no value and it's interesting that columnist George Will wrote about this just this past week when he said, Christmas etiquette involves composing one's face to feign pleasure when unwrapping an unwelcome windfall. <laughs> you, you all know what I'm talking about then, don't you, right? Say a sweater of an appalling color or style. Price of the sweater? $50. Value to the recipient? $0. <laughs> okay? See? And he, in fact, he quoted Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1850, in 1850 now, who said, there are worlds of money wasted at this time of year in getting things that nobody wants and nobody cares for after they are got. That was in 1850. Huh? And yet it's because some people are just kind of driven by fear or guilt or shame. And it's one thing when that has to do with Christmas gifts, but it's a whole other thing when it has to do with our relationship with God. Because some people say, no, well, you know, because if I don't, God will get me. Or, and fear or guilt or shame tend to drive them in terms of their spiritual relationship with God. And so, you know, we say no to you know, we say no to ungodliness and we say yes to godliness you know, out of this oppressive fear that we'll never be able to please God. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you grew up in a spiritual background. You grew up in a church background where that was you know, either the pastor or the leadership or maybe your parents or whatever. There was this, there was this oppressive, fear-based form of, of obedience. You obey out of fear. And, and you know, 
You know, um, not sinning because of fear of getting caught, well, that's, that's just a short-term fix, okay? All right, that, that's, a, that's a short-term fix. I'm talking long-term. I'm talking the kind of marathon spirituality and marathon obedience that, that shame-based and guilt-based and fear-based faith, what happens is, is that you know, we have this oppressive fear that we'll never be able to please God, and then after a while, that oppressive fear becomes anger or resentment, and we begin to resent God, and yet what we've resented is not the true and living God, but rather this idol that we have fashioned, which isn't real. We've just simply made it up. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Did you grow up in that oppressive environment? Are you still struggling with that? Well, God wants to rescue us from that. He wants us to rescue us from being driven by fear. But others aren't driven by fear at all. Uh, Others say no because, well, if I don't, then I'll be a bad person. And I don't want to be a bad person like all the other bad people. So I'll say no, which will make me a good person, someone better compared to those who don't say no. And that's how you become a legalist. That's how you become self-righteous and self-proud. Someone who's you know, thinks more highly of themselves than they ought. Jesus called them Pharisees. Pharisees. Earlier this year, our small group studied uh, Tim Keller's book, the prodigal God, and he tells a story that talks about this kind of self-centeredness. Listen. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king, and he said, Your Majesty, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched, and he discerned the man's heart. And so, you know, he, he said to the gardener, as the gardener was turning to go, the king said, wait, wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. And I, I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden all of it. And, and the gardener was surprised and amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there at the king's court was a nobleman who overheard all of this. And the nobleman said to himself, my, 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 if that's what you get for giving the king a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and he said, your majesty, I breed horses, and this is the finest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. And I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king discerned his heart. And the king said, thank you. And the king took the horse. And the king then dismissed the nobleman. And the nobleman was perplexed. And the king responded. He said, let me explain something. Yesterday, that gardener 
gave me the carrot. But today, you were giving yourself the horse. What Titus teaches us here, church family, is that if you let fear or pride drive the good that you do, you will either be cowering continually before God or you will be appearing arrogantly before God. And God wants to rescue us from that. He wants to rescue us from both self-loathing and self-righteousness. He wants to rescue us from self. And so, Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says, not that fear teaches us to say no, or self-righteousness teaches us to say no, but what? What is it that teaches us to say no? Grace. Grace. Grace teaches us to say no. God's grace is what drives everything we do and think and share as believers. God's grace was what drove these Christians in the first century on the island of Crete to have a spiritually healthy family life. God's grace was what was to drive the older men in chapter 2, verse 2, to be tempered and worthy and, uh, of respect and self-control. God's grace was to drive the older women to be, to be reverent, to be priest-like priestess-like in the way that they lived, not to be slanderers, not to be addicted to much wine, which was very characteristic of Cretan culture back then. God's grace was to drive these older women to mentor the younger women. God's grace was to drive the younger men to be self-controlled in everything. And God's grace was to drive the servants there in that culture to live in such a way that they adorned the gospel of Christ and God's grace was to drive Titus himself as he led and pastored and set the example. Church family, God's grace is why we do what we do. I was talking about this on Thanksgiving. I had some friends that we were conversing with and they said to me so Rand what what are you going to talk about on Sunday and I said well you know I'm this is I'm kind of headed this way and you know I'm going to be preaching over Titus 2 verses 11 to 15 and and they said well what's your sermon in a sentence huh I said well it's Thursday (laughs) you know so I explained a little more about the the message that I was going to be sharing this morning and I told them kind of the gist of it and they said oh I get it grace is driving everybody else get in the back seat and I said say that again (laughs) I I can speak slowly I have to write that down that's it grace is driving everybody else get in the back seat see Grace. Grace is, grace is the car. Grace is the engine beneath the hood of the car. Grace is the fuel that's in the tank of the car. And grace is the driver of the car. Grace is driving. Everybody else, get in the back seat. Grace. Grace is why we do what we do. And notice it says... In verse 11, the grace of God 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does that mean? What's, what's Paul talking about when he talks about this word grace? Well, first of all, grace is historical. We're referring to the historical actual birth of Jesus in Bethlehem in Israel. Grace is the is the advent, the first advent, the first coming of Christ. Now, the Cretans in the first century, they had a mythological story about Zeus, but Christianity is not myth. It is grounded in reality. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the things of first importance are fact-based. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and the twelve. Died, event. Buried, event. Appeared, event. See, it's fact-based. In history, we worship one whom Titus 2.14 says, gave himself for us to redeem us. Grace is historical. And grace is personal, too. Grace is centered on a person. The Cretans believed that Zeus had once been a human, but by his own clever way of being savvy, he sort of morphed into this godlike status, kind of a, kind of a climbing up the ladder on your own approach, a bottom-to-top approach. But Christianity taught that salvation appeared from on high, Its origin was in heaven, a top-down approach that God came to earth in a body. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Behold, the mystery of godliness is great. God appeared in a body. Grace is historical. Grace is personal. And grace is powerful. Powerful. The gospel is the power of God coming into your life from the outside. You see, Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. It's not just a religious list of faith statements. It is a power. That's why Romans 1.16 says that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto the salvation of everyone who believes. You know, when, when some people first come to Christianity, they, they think to themselves, okay, well, I've got this agenda and I've got this life and I've got this job, but, you know, I'm just, I, I, I seem to be, you know, I seem to be not getting where I want to go. So I'll just get Jesus who can help me to go where I want to go. I want to, I'll go to Jesus because I have this sagging identification. I can't reach my goals. So I'll try Jesus because I think he can help me. And when you say that, you have no clue what you're playing with. Because the power of Christ is different. Christianity is not about you helping with your sagging identification. It's about killing that identification and resurrecting a new one, one that he has created. Jesus is not about assisting you with your agenda. He, he, wants, he wants to show you his new agenda for the new life he has given you. And that's called grace. It's history-based, Christ-based, and power-based. And Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says that this power teaches. You see that word teaches? Now, 
The New Testament comes to us in the Greek language and the word for teach, there's other word pictures to describe that. It's a really rich word. The word can also mean train or chasten or discipline. And the Greeks in the first century even used it in this context to discipline by corporal punishment. So the grace of God disciplines us, chastens us, sometimes by corporal punishment. So it's to say no to the world and say yes to God. So it's not a matter of us trying harder on our own. To let grace drive means that we follow grace wherever grace leads us. And the conditioning and the training and the experiences, some of them are educational, some of them are vocational, some of them are family-based, and some of those experiences are painful. Those experiences are all the experiences that Jesus gives us for the purpose of what? Purifying us, helping us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives, purifying us for himself, verse 14, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you hear what these verses are saying? Christians believe that one day the Jesus who appeared in Bethlehem, that's verse 11, will one day appear a second time. That's verse 13. I mean, all of history is, is compressed in those few verses. Those two appearances of Christ. Jesus will one day appear the second time. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's emperor talk. Because Nero, in the first century, was called our great God and Savior. And Paul is saying, no, he's not. Jesus is. And when Christ appears the second time, he's going to transform this world and he's going to transform our bodies and the old heavens and the old earth will give way to the new heavens and the new earth and we will receive new bodies and there will be no sin and no evil and no Satan and we will live the way we were designed to live. Praise God. Amen. That's right. And all because of grace. See? All because of grace. And, and, and what Paul is saying is that grace first appeared to bring the future into the present. Grace appeared to bring the future into the present. And, and someone said that faith is nothing less than the intrusion of the future coming into your present right now. And and this leads me to page three of this thank you letter to you, where this grateful board member wrote, you have in no small way provided a view toward the future that may someday include an end to domestic violence. <laughs> you have in no small way provided a view toward the future there's a lot of theology in that sentence. There's a lot of Bible in that. That's, that's our purpose, church family. 
to live in such a way as to bring what will be inevitable, to bring the future into, because I'm telling you, there's going to come a day when it's not, it's not that there may someday include an end to domestic violence. No, no, no. When the emperor comes, there will be no domestic violence, and there will be no sin, and there will be no sorrow, and there will be no death, and there will be no pain when the emperor comes. So I want you to live right now just like we're going to live when the emperor comes. And that is what we call faith. Faith. Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We believe that our present eagerness to do good, our eagerness to do good will one day be the norm in a redeemed universe. And you see that it's not because of what I've done, it's because of what he has done who gave himself for us to redeem us. And church, when you transfer your trust from a worthless idol of self to Jesus, that future comes into the present and you live a life knowing that you are accepted because it's by grace. So let grace drive. To be a Christian means that you have to say wherever you want to go. Grace is at the wheel. Grace gets to drive. None of this, do I have to stomp that if I become a Christian? That's silly. You have no idea what the king is going to say. He's the king. Just get in the back seat. So now do you know what needs to be said? Now do you know what needs to be said when someone says, why do you do this? Why, why, why be good? Why do you do the good you do? Why do you share? Why do you serve? Why, what motivates you? Really? I mean, I, I'm, I know I'm giving the answer to you, but I mean, it needs to get from the ear to the heart. And one pastor put it this way. Christian, the only thing that makes you differ from the vilest being that pollutes the earth or from the darkest fiend that gnaws his chains in hell is the free grace of God. I didn't know I was that bad. But then grace showed up and changed my life. And so we give over $10,000 to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not, not in order to get God's love, but because we already have God's love. He already gave us his love. We, we send 677 boxes, not, not in order to be redeemed, but because grace appeared and redeemed us. We do the good we do because there is nothing God cannot ask of me. And his grace is the only motivation. God's grace is the only motivation that won't make you feel proud and superior or fearful and self-hating. So, so I just want to say, church family, that I believe that you all have done a fantastic job of bringing the future into the present. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us to not grow weary and one of the ways that we keep from growing weary is to just keep feeding on the truth. And the truth is this, let grace drive. 
Let grace drive. And the message is, is, is for us, is, the, the message for us, church family, is more than just, you know, grace is driving, get in the back seat. I mean, clearly that was the message for these first century Christians on the island of Crete in the book of Titus because they were young Christians and these were young believers and this was, these were young spiritual communities and young churches. But, you know, as I look into our church family, I mean, we've, you know, some of us are new to the faith, but many of us, I mean, we've been Christians for years, decades. And so the, the, message, the message for us isn't merely grace is driving, get in the back seat. The message for us today is grace is driving, stay in the back seat. <laughs> Just stay in the back seat. Let Jesus have the wheel. All right? Stay in the back seat. And, and, and you know that thing that you can see? You've been in the back seat lately. You're in the back seat. What is, that, what is that thing that you can see when you're sitting in the back seat that's right in front of you? I mean, it's, it's there. It's right in front of you. It's that thing. You know, it's that, that thing, you know, that when Jesus is driving, he can, he can lean the back of his head against. You know what I'm talking about? What is that? It's a headrest. That's right. It's a headrest. It's a headrest, not a steering wheel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, where would we be without your amazing grace? Grace that appeared in history. Grace that suffered death on a Roman cross. Grace that was buried and grace that three days later rose bodily, never to die again. And grace that was witnessed when grace appeared to Peter, the 12, 500 at one time. And grace that has changed our lives. Thank you that grace is spelled J-E-S-U-S. And now as we prepare to receive communion, we are once again reminded that it is by grace we are saved through faith. This not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Lord, whatever bragging we do, we're gonna brag about you. We promise. Amen.